This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the Teacher Retention Podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Emily Garlock, Director of Inside Sales at Education Advanced. Prior to working at Education Advanced, Emily was an educator for eight years and was named the Outstanding First Year Teacher for the entire Washington Township Schools in 2013 and was named the Council for Exceptional Children Special Education Teacher of the Year in 2020. Today, Emily will share her own mental health struggles as a teacher, how selling raffle tickets impacted her teaching career, and the one question that could have made a huge impact on her employee experience. All right, Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to hear about your story as a special education teacher, and then now your work within Education Advanced. But before we get to that, can you talk a little bit about your background, why you decided to become an educator, what you're up to right now? Yeah, I would love to. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to, to speak about this. So uh, name Emily uh, Garlock. I was born and raised in Boston, and uh, my grandfather was one of 14. And so big, fun Irish family. Uh, wanted to be closer to them, so went to school out at Butler University in Indianapolis, uh, and then went back and got my master's as well through uh, Butler University in administration. Um, and then in 2012, I took my first teaching job at an elementary school and then continued at that same school for almost 10 years as a special education teacher. So currently residing in Indianapolis, um, recently got married on New Year's Eve of this past year. So enjoy marrying life. And um, yeah. That's great. That's great. So with this uh, podcast being all about the employee experience, I really want to dig into that with you today. Um, Better understand your specific story, better understand what it was like for you as an educator. Um, And then also try to figure out what happened kind of along the way where you had that time in which you thought, you know what, there might be something else for me that's out there. Um, Just a couple of quick points just to the listeners. One is this is your unique story. So we're sharing what's happened to you, what's happening to you. This isn't a narrative across all of education. Uh, There is a narrative that a lot of really quality teachers are leaving the classroom um, for a variety of reasons, one of those being this idea of the employee experience. So while, yes, your story is definitely one among many, this isn't a a blanket story for all educators. Um, The other interesting, I guess, an important thing, too, is we're, we're not intending to single any person, any organization out. Right. Because obviously you were employed by a school district. Um, So instead of this being like, oh, I'm placing blame on this one person, placing blame on this organization. This is more about a chance for us to learn from a highly successful teacher. In fact, an award winning teacher who decided to leave the education profession as a teacher not long after receiving awards for the impact that you've made. Does that sound fair? Yes, sir. Okay, perfect. So I know you were recognized for your teaching a couple of different occasions. One, you were the outstanding first-year teacher at your district, and then you received the Council for Exceptional Children Special Education Teacher of the Year Award in Indiana. And it wasn't long after that. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And it wasn't wasn't long after that that you decided to leave the profession. So here you are making an impact that's being seen by educators across the state. And then how much longer after that, after you received that award, did you decide to resign? It was about, it was less than a year. Less than a year after receiving Teacher of the Year Award, you decided to hang up your cleats, so to speak, and, and move on to something else. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you as a special education teacher? What was that employee experience just in general? It, what, what were the things that you were working on, challenges? It's a huge question, but I'd love to hear kind of your story within the education world. Sure. Yeah. So the journey started again in 2012 when I took my first special education job at an elementary school. And again, I was employed by the same school, same district uh, for almost 10 years before I ended up transitioning to where I am now. And what was interesting, backing it up a little in college I wasn't interested in special education at all. I was an elementary um, education major 
And so had planned on just being a typical general education classroom teacher. And it wasn't until I joined the Best Buddies program where my love for special education really came out. So that was my freshman and sophomore year uh, during my time at Butler University. And I was paired with who I, I still keep in contact with. Her name is Kylene Weber. And she really changed my viewpoint, my lens on what I wanted to do. I still obviously loved education, uh, wanted to focus on elementary, but something in her really pointed me in the direction of, of being intrigued by the world of special education. And so I ended up taking some classes just to see what it was like and fell in love with it. And so I minored in special education. And when I was first hired uh, by my former district, they ended up having two openings, one for a general education classroom and one for special education. So I got to pick and I said, hands down, I want the, the special education job. So it was just funny that that was not my plan going into it. But, uh, you know, again, with joining Best Buddies really changed that trajectory for me. Um, special education is and was my passion. Uh, you know, even though I have transitioned out of the classroom, I still advocate for those kiddos and I hope to always advocate for those kids. Um, I loved my job as a special education teacher. It was one of the most rewarding, difficult, um, chaotic, um, most, um, it, it was a very difficult job, but, but very re rewarding on the receiving end. Those kids, I mean, I can still name my first year kiddos that, that I was helping to teach. Um, a lot of them are almost graduating high school now, which is crazy to think, but uh, a lot of them. So being an elementary special education teacher, I followed a lot of them right when they came into kindergarten until when they graduated fifth grade. So I got the honor of really seeing that growth, not only academically, but developmentally, socially, physically. Um, it, it was really, really cool. And so that bond, as you can imagine, really grew through kindergarten through fifth grade. Loved the kids, uh, loved my team, loved my administrators. Um, I know I'm biased, but my school, I feel like, was the best in the district. Um, and so all, all of that, I really enjoyed. Um, I also gained a lot of good relationships with the parents that I worked with. Um, you know, I, I would see them outside of school. Some of them I was close enough where we would go to dinner on a monthly basis. Um, so felt like I really enjoyed, you know, not only my job, but just the relationships that I was forming both in and outside of the classroom. And, you know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, it was a lot of learning and growing. You know, I, I still remember my first day, I, I used to keep a diary and I still have the journal entry that I wrote on my very first day of teaching, how nervous I was, how I felt like, I was a deer in the headlights. I didn't know what was going on. And I felt like I blacked out really, you know, even my first year of teaching. And so, um, but my day consisted of routine, knowing these kids inside and out. It, you know, it was my job to not only advocate for them, but also uh, knowing their education plans inside and out, making sure that I was meeting those needs making sure that I was adapting my schedule in order to best fit their needs. Uh, a lot of my kiddos had emotional needs. Uh, they were very high academically, but they had different groups such as social skills and how to de-escalate and how to verbally ask for what they wanted instead of getting angry or eloping from the classroom. And so I loved the challenge behind that. And you know, what it, my love for the kids was always at the very foremost in my thinking process and making sure that they were getting, you know, the best education and the best resources that they could for me. And I think over the years, what ends up happening is that, you know, I've always been one where I can function and, and my motivator is is results. So if I saw my kids growing in any sort of way, that was enough of, of a motivator for me. But I think what happens across education is the lack of appreciation 
and the amount of work that is asked of you just continues to grow apart. Um, again, I, I never felt like our team in general needed, you know, a pat on the back or, or whatnot, but just, uh, the amount of, um, the amount of work that is put on you just almost gets to be like unrealistic. Like I don't even have enough hours in the day to do this. And what started to happen is, you know, if, if you're a teacher, you have a great work ethic for the most part. Um, almost every teacher I know would go above and beyond and would spend, you know, all of their energy and all of what they had to make sure these kids were getting what they needed. So what was happening is, I was going early to school. You know, I would get there, you know, an hour or two before the kids would get there. And I would stay late. I would stay past dinner time. Um, sometimes later, sometimes I would, you know, maybe leave around dinner time, but then I would take my work home with me. And it doesn't matter whether I was there or here. I felt like I couldn't turn it off. And what ended up happening with that is when you can't turn it off, you start to internalize a lot of it. And when I was internalizing it, it's almost like their problems became my problems. And when you're servicing 20 to 30 kids, I mean, that's 30 different scenarios, again, that you're internalizing, not to mention um, at the time, you know, part of that time I was in a serious relationship, part of that time I was going through a breakup, you know, there were deaths, there were moves, there were, I mean, there's so many other things going on. Life was going on that I needed to deal with, but felt like I wasn't and couldn't because of all the other things I was internalizing professionally. And, um, you know, oh, I see a lot of teachers doing that and I would try not to. And it's just like, sometimes it's just in your genes. Like you just, you feel too much almost. Um, and then as a result of that, it would just spiral and spiral. So I would, and in the beginning, I would notice, I'd say, okay, Emily, you, you are there, you're working 14 hour days. You need to turn it down and you need to, you know, have one or two days a week where you just go home early or not early, but you know, before dinner time. At a decent time. And then, um, yeah. And then what would happen when I did that is I feel guilty. It's like, you know, even when I'm leaving at that hour, I feel like I should be there. And so it was this internal battle of just, and then it would just snowball and spiral. And then finally it got to the point where it was starting to greatly affect my mental health. Mm. Um, you know, the last couple of years that I was teaching also mix in COVID with that, um, mm -hmm. which COVID alone isolated it was you know turn people's worlds upside down so when you have covid you have your own personal life that you're going through you have your duties as a professional but now you're internalizing all of these kids issues um, and the parents issues and just it, it all became too much and it almost felt like i was drowning to the point where i felt like a weight was just continuing to weigh me down and down and down. And no matter what I did or how late I stayed or what I tried to do, that it was just almost the point of no return. Um, mm -hmm. I almost, the, a good visual is almost like when cancer is starts to go into a person and starts to spread. Mm -hmm. And if you don't catch it early enough, it, it gets to be too late where it's just, there's too much in order to do something about it. And that's, yeah. that's truly how I felt. And that's, me. That's quite the analogy because when you think of cancer, you think like this is one of the worst possible things that could happen because it's not often a, you get diagnosed. My father-in-law has gone through two different types of cancer, a bone marrow transplant. Like he went through three and a half years or so of cancer recovery. So when you think cancer, you don't think it's an acute thing and then it's over. It's a slow building. Like you said, that spreads over the course of time. And at some point it becomes unmanageable. At some point your body can't fight it. So you have to seek outside assistance. What's interesting about this analogy is what is the outside assistance for a teacher who, who does internalize that goes home and thinks about all of the, the different ways that they can and maybe should or could support their kids. What, what did you do? So when you were in the moment feeling overwhelmed, what are some of the things that you tried to do? 
what, what maybe worked, obviously lots of things didn't work, but what was your attempt at recovery, so to speak? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I pride myself in trying. Now I have a great work-life balance. It's almost like I had to hit rock bottom in order to learn how to attain a good balance. And so, um, but in order to get there, it, it's almost like when you start to feel like you don't have control over what's going on, you start to rebel. So when I got to that point, I said, you know what? It, it doesn't matter whether I stay till nine o'clock at night or I leave right when the bell rings. Um, I feel like nothing was changing. And I felt like no matter how much work I was putting in, no results were coming out, even though they were. I, that's just how I felt. I said, you know what? I'm just going to leave every day when the bell rings. If it's not making a difference to me staying till nine o'clock at night, I'm just going to leave every day. And what I started to do was saying, okay, if I'm going to leave at that time in order to combat the guilt that I was feeling, I said, well, let's try to fill that time with something that I really enjoy. So I started saying, okay, one day a week, I'm going to go see um, my friends. One day a week, I'm going to go hang out with my family. One day a week, I'm, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Um, I recently had gotten a dog. So I said, okay, you know, one day a week, I'm going to take my dog to the park. I started uh, taking up workout classes, which ended up being a great remedy for my mental health. But I just started taking that basically four to seven or four to 9 p.m. what I was doing at school and tried to um, in, instead filter in things that I was passionate about. Um, and so that that was a good that was a good remedy at first until you realize that your problems at work still aren't going away. Like you can't full on replace the guilt that you feel that you're not staying late. You can't full on replace the internalizations that you're taking on with these kids. You can't fully remedy when parents are asking the world of you and expecting you to wave a magic wand and you don't have a magic wand. Um, so those things that I realized still remained. Um, and I, I think one of, um, you know, one of the other things is that like, I don't want to have a negative attitude. I don't want to rebel and say, well, instead of staying till nine o'clock at night, I'm going to leave right when the bell rings. It's like, well, that doesn't work for me either. Because then what ended up happening was I started feeling behind. It's like, okay, well, I didn't feel that way before, but it's like, I can't win. No matter if, no matter if I leave and replace it with all of these things that I'm passionate about, it almost added on new problems. And so again, that came with like feeling like I was behind, um, you know, I'm very competitive. So knowing that other people were staying late and I wasn't and people noticed, oh, interesting. You know, Emily's usually she stays late. Why is she leaving? People started to gossip. And then, so again, it's like when you try to fix a problem, three more problems came on and it's almost like, I can't win. I can't win if I stay late. I can't win if I leave when the bell rings. And so that. Yeah. That's kind of how that part went. So it's really, I, I'm married to an educator. Um, she taught in Noblesville schools for eight years, teaches at Ball State University now. And there's a lot of parallels between her story and your story. And we talk a lot about expectations, my wife and I, because much like you, she, so I, I work from home. She works from home Monday, Wednesday, Friday. She's on campus Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm fascinated by the fact that she will sit down to work and she won't get up for like three and a half, four hours. She just, she puts those blinders on and cannot, she can't bring herself to step away from work. And that's a similar thing to what I'm hearing you say, which is I stay after school until nine o'clock. Sometimes I'm there, you know, two hours before. So this idea of expectations and you, you talk about maybe falling behind, you feel like you're falling behind if you're not there for, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours, putting in that much time at work. Why? And you may not have an answer for this, but what what's driving you to have that? Is it expectations you have of yourself? Is it feeling like you're letting down the kids? What what do you think was causing this internal motivation and drive of I have to put in so much time and effort into this? That's a great question, and I feel like it's a multiple of things. It's um, you know my own my own fault and my own unrealistic expectations and pressure that I put on myself in order to perform. Uh, I've always done that. I've always wanted to, you know, be the best and do the best. And, you know, the, the personal expectations I have of myself, uh, it was a personal issue, I guess. But 
The other thing was that, you know, especially as a special education teacher, your job is to make sure that your kids' needs are getting met and that you're in compliance with the law. Special education is all about the law and it's all about the legal ramifications. Every single thing that I did day after day, second after second was all binded to the law. So that pressure was a real pressure. And I can't even tell you the number of people that have um, gotten taken to court by parents. I mean, that fear was a very real fear that I had, that I felt like if I wasn't on my A game every single day, or if I wasn't, you know, if a student had 30 minutes of reading support and I was only in there for 29 minutes that I was going to get taken to court. And so the legal ramifications was a very big stressor. And also different parents having very unrealistic expectations, but them having more of a say than me. Like for instance, if we're in a case conference and little Johnny, um, you know, I believe he has a deficit in reading and he, maybe he should receive 30 minutes of extra reading support. But you have a parent who says, no, I want him to have a one-on-one. -on -one. I want him to have 500 minutes a day of reading support. And, and I know that that is unrealistic. You know, a lot of the times we just kind of had to um, agree to disagree. And, and what that meant was a, a compromise. And so when they're asking the world of me, because every parent wants to advocate for their child, I, I get that. But if every parent is asking that of you and you look at your day and you're like, I physically do not have the amount of minutes that all these parents are asking for. It's like, what do you do? Because in a case conference committee meeting, you know, it's the decision of everyone. And so it's not me versus you. It's, it's really, um, it, it's really difficult because every parent wants the best for their kid. But when I'm looking at all of my students and I'm like, you know, this mom thinks her kid needs this, this like the amount of minutes when I know that they might just need a little bit. Um, that part was hard. And then when you have other teachers that are not pulling their weight, you, you know, that's not just a personal thing anymore. That's like, okay, well, if Susie, the teacher is, is taking off all this time, or maybe she's lazy, or maybe she doesn't, you know, do what she's supposed to do. You have to step in. If you if you don't step in, that kid is not getting what they need. Your school and district is out of compliance. It, it falls back, even though it's not you personally. If that's someone on your team, I mean, it, it just it ends up falling on you anyway. So your teacher of record. Yes, yes. And so I um, and and for the record, my team were rock stars. I never felt like I had to pick up their slack, but I, I definitely saw that in other schools as well. Um, you know, and you're also co-teaching with gen ed teachers. So it's not just my direct special education team. I was working with the special education team, my administrators, K through five gen ed teachers, the specials teachers, the SLP, the physical therapist, the, um, you know, a, a lot of your special ed directors, your, um, you know, a lot of different people just pulling you in a lot of different directions. And so I think just the fear that, you know, if, if not every single person is on their A game at all times, we could get in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned, it's like in a case conference, a parent will advocate for their child. And then you're there as a teacher of record, along with your team, advocating for the child, advocating for what's best as well. Let's take this idea of advocating and turn it towards a teacher now. So there's a lot of there's a lot of support about, you know, teachers need mental health and go get mental health support. And then the teacher asks, OK, where do I go for that? What does it look like to advocate for myself? Have you seen teachers where they, you know, maybe they're burnout, they're stressed, they're exhausted. How often did they reach out for actual help versus how much do they internalize and say, oh, because I heard you say a little bit ago, too, like with in terms of expectations, this is a me thing. This is my personal expectations. That's a me thing. How often do teachers just internalize that and say, this is me versus I know I have a problem. I'm going to go reach out and get help from somebody, whoever that somebody is. I think that depends on your district's benefits. Honestly, I, 
uh, I'm very open about my mental health. Um, you know, I, I have generalized anxiety. I, I take medicine for it and really all stemmed from a lot of the things that I just talked about um, and not having needed it before. And a lot of that brought it on to the point where I couldn't function. Now, my previous district, thankfully, had a hookup with a mental health therapist where teachers could go for six free sessions and, and utilize that. Um, after that, the cost of each session was just mind blowing. I mean, especially what you make as a teacher that just was not, um, and coming, you know, I, I wasn't married at the time, so I was, I was going off one income. So I think, you know, I, I took my first six free sessions. Um, but then I stopped, like I didn't, I didn't have the money to do that. And I think that is the issue. If you have a district that offers unlimited, I would have used it. And I know a lot of teachers who would have backed me up and say, yeah, if it was unlimited mental health assistance, we would use it weekly. But there are some districts that don't offer it at all. And teachers that really need it, it's not that they don't know that they need it. It's that they they can't financially. Now, of course, you have some teachers that, you know, maybe are, are against mental health or against therapy. And, and that's, you know, a, a personal opinion. But I would say the majority of my teaching friends, if it's offered and if it's free or at a discount, they're going to take it. But the financial yeah. piece is what is hindering a lot of teachers. Yeah. So I, I know you can't speculate, but pretend like you lived in a world where you had more access to the mental health resources. So beyond the six free it was included. It was much, much discount. You said you would, you would take that. Is that like, would that have been the lever that you could pull on for you to see yourself in education longer? Or was it, was it the compounding efforts of everything? Cause what I heard you say is a lot of teachers would take access, they would access those resources if they had them available to them. So, and I'm, I'm talking to school leaders all across the United States saying, I don't know how to keep our teachers. We have a teacher saying, Hey, we had these six, I used them. I liked them. I enjoyed them. What kind of impact could that have made you think on you as an educator staying longer or not? I think it would have helped. I don't think it would have been the end all be all. Um, I, I think therapy is fantastic and I think that it can help, but you also have to look at the root cause of why you're going and what's really going on. And if that root cause is not changing, then it's almost like you're putting a bandaid over it. And for me, one of the root causes, you know, as you get older, um, I owned a home at the time, you know, I had, a I had bills to pay, I had a mortgage. And so I think one of the underlying issues that I felt on uh, another pressure was the money or lack thereof. I was, like I said, going into work early, staying late, working, you know, 50, 60, 70 hour weeks by making, you know, what was basically poverty level and all jokes aside. So in order to be able to pay for my mortgage, I had babysitting jobs. I dog sat. I, um, I sold my clothes at consignment stores. I mean, I, I did anything I could to make extra money. And so, but if you think of, okay, I'm working till 6 p.m. some days teaching. I go straight from teaching at 6 p.m. and I babysit till 11. And then I do it all the next day. My weekends are taken up by that. That's the point where you can go to as much therapy as you want, but like the money, that's something that, that you can't change. And again, it's not all about the money. No one gets into teaching for the money. But it is a realistic thing as you get older, where you're like, I have to pay the bills. And I, um, you know, so I think with, with the amount of pay um, and then knowing that like some of the root issues were not going to change, something else that was really, really a driving factor of me leaving is that um, kids' behaviors were not getting better. Every single year, they were only getting worse. So when you talk about mental health for adults, uh, and I'm a typical adult, 
there is no mental health support for the kids that really need it, um, especially ones that are identified as like having an emotional disability, kids that truly need it. It's literally like you get some social skills groups or, you know, maybe we can get you an inpatient. It was like two opposite ends of the spectrum, but there just wasn't a lot of options in the middle. And, you know, we had things like hit lists and, um, I had to check students' backpacks for guns every morning. Um, one of my, the history on a computer, a, a student was looking up how to shoot up a school. Those are things that therapy is not, I mean, what is a therapist going to do? My living fear of going to work every day, um, that's something therapy couldn't touch. So stuff like that, where I'm like, okay, now I not only feel overwhelmed and the guilt and taking on, now it's like, I fear for my life going to work. And, and then when you're like, I am, I am now I'm at the point where I'm fearing for my life going to work. There's not a whole lot that anyone can do. And I'm making poverty level money. My anxiety has gotten so bad that now I'm on medication I don't have any free time to do anything anymore because, you know, now I'm spending all my free time trying to make an extra buck. Um, I'm a mess to be around at home because I'm so miserable. So now my relationships are suffering. I don't have any energy to, to work out and, and, you know, do other things that could help with that. And so that was the point where I was like, what am I doing? This is, it does not have to be like this. I do not have to cry every day to work. I do not have to fear for my life. I do. I think when I realized you're not stuck, like you, there are other options. You know, I can deal with the stuff I was talking about in the beginning, the internalizing and staying late. But the stuff that got really, really heavy, and I just realized it wasn't an isolated incident it was progressively just getting worse and worse. And I did not feel it was my school. I did not feel like it was my district because I had other friends, um, some who taught secondary, some who taught elementary, some were in this state, some were, you know, back home in Boston and everyone was experiencing the same thing. That's when I realized, okay, it's not just like a school transfer thing or like a district transfer thing. This is something that doesn't seem like it's getting any better. And my mental health is suffering. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't a good teacher anymore. You know, when you're at that point, you, it's like, you can't pour from an empty cup. You had nothing left yeah. to give. So, yeah. I, so I've, I've never seen you teach before, but I would probably disagree with you weren't a good teacher anymore because I mean, you're obviously you're making an impact. I think there again, the expectation between here's what I expect from myself versus here's what I perceive myself as giving out to my students. Like there was probably a gap there. I would guess that any administrator, parent, colleague, if they were to see you in action would say, wow, look at Emily go. She's amazing. So don't, don't discount yourself and the work that you were doing with your kids, especially at the end where you did feel all the pressure, pressure, the stress, the anxiety, the, the internalizing was taking over. I'm curious about how long were you in that mindset or that, that reality of, this is too much before you made a decision to leave the classroom? Again, I, I truly feel like it wasn't like I was at my breaking point for two years. It, it was definitely a progressive thing where um, I would say for about a year and a half, starting at the beginning of that timeline, I started to just kind of notice, okay, like, and, and my family was noticing, they're like, you just don't seem happy. I was noticing it, they were noticing it, but I wasn't at any sort of breaking point. You know, that was still the point where I, was, I just kind of noticed it. And then I tried to remedy it and I tried to, you know, do all those things I was telling you before, you know, continuing to go to therapy, continuing to like do my passions outside of work and all of that. And then even when I did that, I just noticed like, not only was I not feeling better, but like more, more was piled on more behaviors, more expectations, more workload, no more, no increase in pay, no increase in appreciation If anything. It's like, no, if, if you perform and you're a high performer, we're just going to pile more and more onto you. Um, so like you're like, 
you're not rewarding your high achieving teachers. If anything, you're like, oh, if Emily can do it. Let's just give her more. Let's punish um, her by giving her more of what she's good at. Yeah. And, and I took that as, oh, wow. You know, like I'm never going to say no, I'm always going to do it. And, um, so I would say it was a very slow progression, um, slow death, if you will, where, um, then I got to the point, I felt that way for about a year and, you know, teaching is different too. That, you know, teaching is not the business world where like people leave every day. It's like, I'm not going to leave halfway through the school year. Like if you might feel that way in November, but you're going to write it out. And so it's not like, I mean, I guess I could have, I could have done that, but I felt like I had to kind of wait for, for like a good open, a good window, a good opening to leave. And so felt like it was like a year and a half. And then, um, the year that I actually left, um, I just, I didn't go back. So I finished up that school year. I, we went till May. It was the previous, um, you know, winter time, I would say, um, November, December, January, where I, again, that was the point where the mental health crying every day to work, you know, having to up, keep upping my medicine, just realizing like, you don't have to do this. And so one of the cool transition points was at the time I told you about all my side gigs. Like my, my name was literally Emily side hustle. Like that's what people would refer to me as like, I did, I can't even count how many side hustles, but one of them was one of my girlfriends uh, during the cold season would help work before the games and help sell raffle tickets. And she said, Hey, the girl, the other girl didn't come back. Would you want to do it? And I said, yeah, I, I would, I need the money. So I would do that with her. And so it was a soft sales gig, if you will. And I remember going in and, um, they would have a, you know, you would get a certain commission if you will, but every, time you would sell, the top salesperson would get an extra lump sum. And every week I was always the top seller. I just, I loved it. I was good at it. I, I looked forward to that every single Sunday. And it almost was like, I can't wait for Sunday because I'm so excited about that. It felt good that I was good at it. It felt good that other people thought I was good at it. And it just, um, it was something I really enjoyed. And one of the guys that ran it said, Hey, you know, you're so good at this joking, but not joking. Have you ever considered sales? And I was like, mm. I mean, people have made comments like that to me in the past, but I never really took it seriously. I was like, huh, it's kind of interesting. He said that. And so it just so happened that the day he said that was around Thanksgiving when my brother was in town who is a very successful salesperson. Um, shout out to Paolo. And, you know, I, I told him and my mom, who's also been in marketing and sales her entire life, also very successful. I told them the story and they were like, you would be so good at that. And the wheels just started turning. And my brother said, have you ever thought about ed tech? And I said, I don't even know what that is. And he's like, of course, yes, you do. And he started explaining it to me and, you know, in my school district, we had different ed tech resources that my kids would use, uh, Lexia, Dreambox, IXL, you know, all, all of those resources. And I said, I never thought about that. He said, well, in order for a district to use those, they have to have purchased it from a salesperson. And I just got really intrigued by that because it really excited me. And so then it just kind of became the spiral of, researching it, looking into it. In my free time, I liked learning about it. I liked listening to podcasts. I liked talking about it with my brother. I, I just enjoyed it. And so it's like your gut is your guardian angel. And at that point, my gut was saying, you're not married, you're single, you're miserable, you need more money. This is a perfect time to try something new. And so then that just kind of started it. That's fascinating. So selling raffle tickets got you into ed tech sales. Yes. Um, so before we transition over to education advance, I have one more question. Did did your administrators, did your colleagues know that you were unha unhappy as you were? Is that something that you feel like you're able to keep inside enough that nobody else could tell? I would say 
from an outside point of view, I don't know if people that weren't close to me could tell, but like my teammates, I was very close with. Like they were like my sisters. So we all knew how each other felt. And if I was crying on the way to work, they knew me well enough to be like, Emily, you look like you were just crying. And I'd be like, I was, you know, and, and go into it. But I also, you know, I'm a big believer of like a positive mindset. So I was like, you know what? I'm here, whether I like it or not, I might as well just put on a happy face and try my hardest because you can either be happy or you can be miserable. So I chose to do my best to like make it through the day. And so I don't feel like a lot of other people knew. And then I would just collapse at the end of the day when I got home and just, you know, it's, it was like, it was exhausting having to put on an act all day, but you know, I didn't want the kids also to see me like hating my job either. Cause it's, that's not helping anyone. So I would say my close colleagues knew and no one else really did. I know I said one more question, but you've, you've got me intrigued now. If someone were to sit down and ask you, a principal administrator, special ed director, for example, hey, Emily, how are you? What what would have been your response? At that time, I am a, I'm a very emotional person. So I'm pretty, I'm very good at hiding it unless you ask me directly. Like I, I don't lie. I can't lie. If, if someone were to sit me down and say, hey, how are you? For a fact, my eyes would have welled up with tears. I would have started bawling and I would have just like word vomited, if you will. So, um, yeah, I don't have a good, I can't lie. If someone were to ask me that, that is how I would have responded. Yeah. And I, that's what I assumed because a lot of, a lot of people just keep it inside. They're afraid of the vulnerability. They're afraid of bringing, and I'm not saying you were afraid to, but the, the situation never came up where somebody maybe you felt like was really intrigued by how you're doing, what they could do to help, what barriers do you have that they could help you to remove. And I think that part of that is the employee experience, right? It's this idea of, you know, what's it like to work in this organization? And unless and until you have somebody talking to you about it, where do you go with the information? You go to your teammates, you go to the people that you know, like, and trust on your team. At that point, there's probably a lot of similar sentiment, I would guess. Maybe not all of your colleagues felt similar to you, but I'm guessing there was some level of, of right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think yes. if, if leaders go out and they have one-on-ones with their people, 15 minutes, once a quarter, you know, special ed director, principal, hey, how are you doing? What can I do for you? What are you struggling with that I can help? I think a lot of people would be more than willing to share what it's like for them at the moment. I'm a former principal myself. I didn't do that very well. I didn't sit down and have one-on-ones with the intention of, hey, how can I help? Because my excuse is I was so busy. The reality was I didn't put enough emphasis on my people because I was busy doing my job. So I think there's a big disconnect there with managers, if you will, principals, leaders, talking to their people without an agenda, without a, hey, this is not just a post-observation conference, not just a, hey, let's talk about this case conference, but just, hey, how are you doing? What can I do to help? I think if and when leaders start doing that, I think they'll have huge benefits for the relationship, but also the idea of teacher burnout, teacher stress, teacher exhaustion. Because if you can say, I can't keep up with this anymore, Good leaders will listen to you, give you an avenue to vent, and then come up with, hey, what are we going to do about this now? Some of it's listening, some of it's planning and actually putting into action some steps. But unless we sit down with our people and have a one-on-one conversation with them, it's hard to know how people are actually doing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And you know, also, no, no fault of them. I had fantastic administrators. But towards the end, this was also um, six months into COVID. So like their world also got turned upside down as an administrator and having to like now make that their focus. So I don't blame them one bit that their focus wasn't on, no, how is Emily doing? You know, they had a whole war that they were battling themselves. And, um, you know, I, I don't fault them for that at all. Um, I can't imagine being an administrator during that. Hence um, why I didn't want to. <laughs> and I think what administrators need is their directors of curriculum, directors of HR saying, hey, principal, how are you doing? What barriers? So I think it's just a domino effect. I think everybody has to have that conversation. But I think this idea of having these one-on-one conversations once a quarter, whatever the cadence is necessary, I think would be huge for our profession. 
I agree. I yeah. agree. Can you talk about the work you're doing in education advance now? I'd love to hear about that. I would love to. I um, I could not be happier in my current role, my current department, uh, my current company. Um, no one is paying me to say this, but I could not say enough about education advanced. Um, when I was first interviewed, what they really stressed to me was that they were all about people, products, and processes, but they put their people above all else. And so that was something that uh, was pitched to me during the interview. And I cannot stress enough how that has come true uh, the two years that I've been there. Anytime that someone is um, needing something or under mental stress or anything like that, just like what you were just talking about, they are the first to say, how can I help? What can I do? What can I take off your plate? Um, I feel fully supported in an environment that is all remote, which is very interesting. I know it's a big transition going from a very uh, busy, chaotic classroom, school building to just being alone in my office. But um, nothing is, is was I never felt more lonely before, um, even though I was surrounded by a lot of people every day. And I've never felt more supported just being by myself in, in my home office. So um, one of the reasons why I love what I do now is because I'm still in the education field. So I don't think I would like sales as much or at all if I wasn't in a space that I was truly passionate about. So we have different resources that empowers educators and transforms schools um, and, and really changes the lives of those kiddos, whether it's through curriculum, testing, um, master scheduling and making sure they're getting what they need in order to graduate. So the fact that I'm still communicating with educators and districts in order to help those kids is, is everything I could ask for. If anything, I am now impacting way more kids than I was at my, at my school. So knowing that uh, makes me feel really good at the end of each day. Like I am making a difference. I am helping. I am happy. I, um, I no longer take anxiety medicine. I, um, you know, I, I'm now married and I have free time. I, I do my job and I try to go above and beyond every single day, but I have my nights back and my weekends back. And I, um, all of that combination is just, um, it's, it's made me a, a happier person, but being in the education space, I feel like is a big yeah, so the the goal of this podcast is to turn what you just said and have teachers be able to say that same thing, which is, you know, I feel supported. I have a team that I know has my back and I understand what's expected of me. I understand what's not expected of me. There's not pressure for me to work, even internal pressure for me to work until 9 p.m. every night and in the weekends and get there so much before school starts. And I think it's going to take a lot of intentional thinking, conversations, processes, for school leaders to get to that point, because when I when I heard you and when I saw you talking, your face just lit up, right? You were smiling more talking about what you're doing now than you were in education. And I know you love your education background. You I, you loved the working with the kids, working with your teammates. I could tell that. But there was a completely different response right there, which is I love this. I enjoy it. I get to do you know, I get to impact so many more kids now. So that that's the goal of this podcast is to be able to have teachers say this because we're learning from one another, learning from industry experts, learning from people like yourself, being willing to share their stories of, here's what I was missing in education, now I have it, and I can connect the dots and I can articulate, here's what I was missing in education. Because you you may not have known the one, two, or three things that you needed before, but now you're on the other side of that and you can identify and you can label that. So being able to say it out loud, I think will help a lot of school leaders here. So thank you for that. Is there anything else about education advance you want to talk about? Any other plugs you want to put in? Because that's totally fine if you do. <laughs> no, I just, um, I just am very proud of what I do. I'm very proud of my company. Again, um, you know, I just want to to make it clear that like your happiness and your mental health uh, should come first and foremost. Because if you are not happy professionally and or personally, you can't pour from an empty cup. 
So all my educators out there, whether, you know, you're teaching, you're in ed tech, you're, you know, doing something else in the education field, taking care of yourself and really diving in and figuring out what, what is going to make me happy because a happier Emily equals a happier teacher, a happier salesperson. You know, it's, um, your mental health is very important. So I appreciate you creating this podcast and asking us to come on because I think when we hear different voices and pick up different tidbits and tricks, hopefully we can at some point combine all of those to help, you know, these teachers and educators. And Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. What's one celebration you have to share? I know you were married recently. Is that your celebration or do you have something else too? Yes. Uh, recently got married um, to Pat Garlock. And so a uh, new last name is, is Garlock. Very proud of that. Um, I would say that is what I'm most proud of personally. Um, professionally, I, I recently got promoted uh, to director of inside sales. And I am honored and humbled to be able to help lead my team in order to help these kids. So I'm going to use my my motivation and my positivity in, in order to help more kids. That That is my goal. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. How can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Yeah, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. I know that uh, you had the direct link, but you can feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. Um, also active on, on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can try uh, Emily Garlock or also my maiden name, which is A-L-A-I-M-O. All right. Perfect. Thanks so much, Emily. Appreciate all you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Our goal at the end of every episode is to have a student in the guest's life say thank you to or tell a story about a teacher who has made an impact on them. Today, we have Emery saying thank you to Mr. Kuski. Hi, I'm Emery. I'm a fifth grader, and I would like to thank Ms. Kuski for for helping me understand math better. Thank you for that kind message, Emery, and thank you to Mr. Kuski for making math fun and enjoyable for your students. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks, and have a wonderful day. <laughs>